1: previously on The Züring System. On April 30th, 1986, Jens Züring and Elizabeth Hasem's run from the police comes to an end. The pair is arrested in London under false names on suspicion of check fraud. Shortly thereafter, the detectives uncover their true identities and, with that, the connection to the murders of Elizabeth Hazem's parents. Their arrest in London marks the beginning of life behind bars for both Elizabeth Hasem and Jens Züring. Until his release in 2019, Züring will spend a total of 33 years in prison, meaning he has spent more of his life inside of prison than out of it. The Züring System a podcast series from CCC Cinema and Television and Argonne Lab 2022. Please note, this podcast contains graphic descriptions of physical and sexual violence that are not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 4 of 8: The Birth of the Zoring System. This episode describes how the Zoring system emerges during Yen Zuring's time in prison. While imprisoned, he is able to establish a network of supporters whose help he uses to try and obtain early release. One of these supporters is Annabelle. On this podcast, she will be speaking publicly for the first time ever about her experiences in Zuring's inner circle. In prison. During his 33 years in prison, Zuring adapts to the world around him. He knows how to stand up for himself, and he knows which strategies could one day help him to leave life behind the prison walls. The first time Züring sees the inside of a jail, it's 1986. He and Hasem are convicted of check fraud by an English court. At this point, they are transferred from police custody to an actual prison. In his book, Not Guilty, which is published 2012, he describes his memories of his first day in prison.
2: The far-off sound of metal on metal every five seconds. Another five seconds. Bang. Suddenly, the small window on my prison cell door slams open and the guard looks in to see if I'm awake. His face shows no
1: emotion at all. After he and Elizabeth Hasem serve their eight-month sentence for check fraud, Zuring is transferred to Brixton Prison, a men's prison located in South London. Terry Wright, the Scotland Yard detective who had questioned Zuring and Haysom about the murder of her parents the previous year.
3: She's in a female prison, he's in a male prison. And, uh, of course, it all changed for him as well because all of a sudden now he was a murder suspect, not just a a fraud suspect. So I think this time round, instead of being at the, the juvenile remand centre, he was in Brixton Prison awaiting the extradition and awaiting trial.
1: Now Zuring is in detention awaiting trial for murder. In his book... Rückkehr ins Leben, which translates to return to life. He describes his time in prison, which for him as a young man from a privileged background is particularly awful.
2: Nothing in my previous life as a straight-A student and the sheltered son of a diplomat prepared me for the psychological terror of Her Majesty's prison in Brixton. Physically, I was also no match for
1: this dangerous situation. In January 1990, Zuring is extradited to the United States under the condition that he will not receive the death penalty. Instead, at his trial in the same year, he receives back-to-back life sentences. In Germany and in many other parts of the world, it is rare for someone given a life sentence to actually spend the rest of their life in jail. In the United States, however, a life sentence often means just that, spending the rest of your life, or a substantial part of it, behind bars. Kirsten Drenkhan, a professor of criminal law and criminology at the Freie Universität Berlin, who researches, among others, on punishment and society, and juvenile justice in an international context, says the following.
4: In this kind of a case where two people were murdered, and I'm talking murder as defined under paragraph 211 of the German Penal Code, if this is confirmed to be the case, then, during sentencing, they would have to decide whether the perpetrator is to be sentenced as a minor or as an adult. Once again, with the corresponding limitations for adolescents, This difference is taken into account in Germany, but it's not in US juvenile criminal law. Today, this is changing. However, in the 80s, it was clear that they would be sent to adult prisons and receive adult sentences in accordance with the relevant criminal laws for adults. He received a life sentence without the prospect of parole. This would never be the case in Germany, that much is clear. The German Federal Constitutional Court and the European Court of Human Rights forbid it. But in this case, he goes in at the age of 18, and the only way out is in a coffin. And this happens more often than you might think.
1: For this reason, Züring's goal from day one is to obtain early release. So he starts by creating a support system for himself. One that provides him not only with financial benefits, but also a more secure status. In his 2021 book, Return to Life, Zuring writes that he convinces two older inmates, Chuck and Arthur, who run a money-lending business, to work together with him.
2: As a team, the two loan sharks and I earned a lot of money for prison standards. But for me, financial success was just a welcome side effect. It was much more important that by working together with Chuck and Arthur... I was able to adopt a position in the prison hierarchy that would at least protect me against physical attacks.
1: During his 33 years in prison, Zuring spends time in several U.S. prisons. In 1999, he is transferred to the newly completed Wellens Ridge State Prison. Wellens Ridge State Prison is a supermaximum security or supermax prison. Supermax prisons were first introduced in the U.S. in the 1980s and are designed to house the most dangerous, high-risk inmates. The extreme conditions in these prisons have been strongly criticized by Human Rights Watch and other organizations. In 1999, the time when Zuring is transferred to Wellens Ridge, the Washington Post describes it as Virginia's toughest prison. Quote,
5: Forget classes, a job in the laundry, lifting weights, playing ball. Even the occasional friendly visit from a grandmother or wife is almost always off limits. And that one hour a day of freedom? Get used to wearing handcuffs and leg shekels while a guard wielding a 50,000-volt stun gun walks you to the shower with bars of its own or the small concrete courtyard for exercise. And even if you get out of solitary and your day is broken up by trips to the dining hall or a few hours in the day room, there will be a shotgun loaded with heart rubber pellets trained on your every
1: move. Zuring files an appeal. He wants to be transferred to a lower security prison. His request is granted. Eventually, he is transferred to Buckingham Correctional Center, where he remains until his release in 2019. Contact with the outside world. Now, Zuring has the opportunity to establish contact with the outside world and enlist supporters in his so called struggle for freedom. Among other things, Zuring receives pro bono support from attorneys who are interested in his case and want to fight for his release. Most of his supporters at this time are individuals who want to protest against the American prison system. But, starting in 2007, his supporters begin to coalesce into a network, both in Germany and in the U.S. In 2010, an article entitled Forgotten Behind Bars in the Süddeutsche Zeitung garners him considerable attention. The author is the Page 3 reporter... Karin Steinberger. She first meets Zuring in 2006 and visits him in prison in the US several times. Steinberger paints a picture of Zuring as a German prisoner on the edge of despair who refuses to give up. The body of evidence against him is thin. His sentence is questionable. The article itself. An additional reporting in the media after the article is published introduce Zuring and his story to a very large audience all at once. The result? He begins to receive a flood of letters. He corresponds with his newly acquired supporters in the form of letters and emails, speaks to them on the phone. Some even visit him in prison. In his book, Not Guilty, he writes about his growing network.
2: After having lost touch with Germany over 21 years, I was so happy to have so many new friends at home. The only drawback was that I now had to maintain two large networks of supporters, one in the U.S. and one in Germany, and all with just a pen
1: and paper. Zuring uses correspondence to spread his version of the story the story of the innocent German imprisoned in the United States, further and further. Information about Züring and his case is now available on a website that is owned and operated by Züring's German supporters. Later on, they create Facebook and Twitter accounts. Furthermore, Züring also writes a regular newsletter from prison. He refers to his defenders as his Freundeskreis, which translates to circle of friends. But it's actually much more than that. It's a network, an agency, working around the clock, in shifts, unpaid, with one aim, to spread the story of his innocence. In 2016, the documentary film Killing for Love is released. It is directed by Karin Steinberger together with documentary filmmaker Marcus Feta. Research for the project starts in 2013. They visit Zuring in jail in Virginia and follow his American attorney, Gail Ball, as well as a private detective whom Zuring and his team have hired. They search for evidence that can prove Zuring's innocence and interview several protagonists who are involved with Zuring's case, Bayerische Rundfunk, Südwestdeutsche Rundfunk, Arte and the BBC are all involved in the production of the film, which is nominated for the German Documentary Film Prize in 2017 and is screened around the world. Steinberger and Feta also produce a radio feature that is broadcast on various public broadcast channels. In both the film and the radio story, Züring's version, being imprisoned for years despite being innocent, and the narrative of a legal scandal are repeated practically word for word. The film reaches a wide audience, including Annabelle in London, who is moved by Züring's fate. The Circle of Friends Annabelle joins The Circle of Friends in 2017. At this point, it has been 31 years since Züring's sentencing. During this time, he has written several books, given interviews and unsuccessfully appealed his conviction in a wide variety of ways.
6: And so the Zering documentary or the documentary about the Hasten murder case, it stayed with me, it stuck with me for some reason, and I couldn't get it out of my head. And so I told all my colleagues about it. um, And I said, there must be a way for me to help. Because the thought that someone is stuck in prison for a crime that he allegedly didn't commit, it was just such a huge miscarriage of justice
1: that I was desperate to try and help. Annabelle reads more about the case. She has no doubt that Zuring was wrongly convicted, so she decides to contact him.
6: Okay, so what I did is I checked out his website and obviously there was a huge amount of information on there. There was a button that you could click to donate money and I kept thinking, what can I do to help? But I never thought that only three or four months later I would end up uh, having all the trial transcripts and the original case files on my desk. I never would have imagined that I could ever end up getting so deeply involved as I did.
1: As she researches Züring, she learns that he has a so-called circle of friends that is advocating for his release. One female supporter is frequently named in the articles.
6: So at the time when I first joined that circle of friends, she was sort of like the public face of that circle of friends, of the uh, Freundeskreis, and of course... As you know, there are all kinds of cliches um, about these groups of supporters. And people think, you know, the women only help because they've, they've gotten caught up in some sort of bizarre romance uh, with an inmate that they've never met before. So I actually thought at the time, OK, they're, they're probably a couple. But in reality, it wasn't like
1: that at all. Annabelle emphasizes that there was never any romantic relationship between Züring and the people in the circle of friends.
6: And so I ended up becoming part of this circle of friends, uh, the the so-called Freundeskreis. Throughout my entire time on that team, Züring never ever expressed any sort of romantic feelings towards anybody and vice versa. It was never about that.
1: Starting then, in addition to her full-time job, Annabelle works every day as a supporter in Zuring's team, which welcomes her with open arms. Zuring himself also places a great deal of trust in her from the beginning, and they begin communicating frequently via email. At the first, the tone of their conversations is casual. She appreciates the fact that she can talk to the well-read, humorous inmate about anything and everything.
6: So when I think back on the first few weeks of being in contact with Jens, we basically spent a lot of time just exchanging lighthearted, very casual emails, um, basically just chatting. And I remember being pretty much taken aback because, um, you know, he, he had a sense of humor and he knew what was going on in the outside world and i kept thinking how you know how can this be this man has been stuck in a prison cell for 30 years he also came across very smart and so it was very unusual i didn't expect him to be like that and then at some point i think i sent him like a jokey email i made some some sort of joke i can't remember what it was And he usually would have responded in a jokey way, but he didn't. I didn't know him that well at the time. So I reached out to his longest standing supporter and I said to her, I have no idea what I've done. Maybe I've insulted him. I'm actually a bit worried here. And her response was was very incredible. She said, no, don't worry. You haven't done anything wrong at all. A warm welcome. You have now been sort of accepted into his innermost circle of supporters, and now he's opening up to you. And the thing is, only once that facade drops, that's when you get to know
1: the actual, the real Jens Züring. Soon, Annabelle is responsible for managing all of the documents related to Züring's case and becomes one of his closest confidants. Hardly anyone knows the documents as well as she does. Not only is she responsible for managing all of the information on Zuring's case, she also shares this information with anyone interested. So after these first few weeks,
6: I also began actively helping with his campaign. My involvement grew bigger and bigger and it ended up taking over my whole life. So my whole day would be structured around his Fought for freedom and his needs, and my life became quite regimented and structured around all of that. And basically, everything just revolved around this freedom fight from early morning until late at night.
1: Annabelle describes her work as part of the circle of friends.
6: I was uh, put in charge, for example, of the vast document archive, which kept growing and growing because uh, there was a constant flurry of documents being created. Whenever someone needed a document or needed to have a quote from a from a document, even his lawyers in Virginia would just say, "Oh, just ask Annabelle because she knows where it is. She knows on what day in the trial a quote was made." <laughs> I did lots of other things as well. I translated documents, I ran his English language Facebook page, and I did I did quite a lot. So what I used to do as well is I created press packs. Zuring, I think, was always afraid of being forgotten, and he was always keen to have some sort of media coverage. So whenever he reached out to journalists and wanted them to interview him, for example, I would be the one to create the media packs for him. I created documents for those members on the team who held the press conferences. It was very exhausting and sometimes I'd end up creating these documents on the subway, on public transport on my way home from work. Jens Züring always had some sort of free pass or carte blanche um, with all of us on his team. He could do or say whatever he wanted. Um you just had to forgive him. And the excuse that we always came up with was, you know, poor old Jens, he's suffering so much. He would actually remind us how much he suffered in prison. You'd be mad with him for something, and you'd send him an email saying this this wasn't okay, and then he'd reply by saying, Okay, this morning at breakfast it was absolutely great because I was given two cherries that weren't moldy. So he would constantly try and remind us how much he suffered. And, I mean, I'm I'm sure that he suffered. But nowadays, I think that he strategically reminded us how much he suffered. Because then you couldn't stay mad with him.
1: Famous supporters. Zuring needs a new image. Rather than being seen as a murderer, he needs to position himself as a victim of the U.S. justice system. Zuring's circle of friends is key. Several members contact various politicians to raise awareness of the case, and their efforts are rewarded, as this timeline shows.
5: February 2011. Markus Loening, Federal Government Commissioner for Human Rights Policies and Humanitarian Aid, visits Jens Zuring in prison. Early 2012. In a letter to the Governor of Virginia, Jerzy Buzek, President of the European Parliament, asks for Züring to be extradited to Germany. June 2012 On the initiative of Christoph Strasser, the Speaker for Human Rights of the SPD faction, 54 members of the German Parliament appealed to Robert McDonnell, the Governor of Virginia, with a request to transfer Züring to a German prison. Summer 2014 in a letter to the acting governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, 160 members of the German parliament once again appeal on Zering's behalf, advocating for his transfer to Germany. October 2017. Former federal president of Germany, Christian Wolff, and German ambassador, Peter Wittig, petition the parole board for Zering's transfer to Germany. March 2019. Erwin Kotler, a prominent human rights attorney, joins Züring's team after visiting him at Buckingham Correctional Center.
1: Over the years, Züring amasses a growing number of contacts in political and diplomatic circles. They all advocate on his behalf, an immense privilege and one that is rarely bestowed on any other prisoner.
6: So Jens Züring tends to publicly discuss all the things that went wrong for him, making himself out to be a victim, but he forgets or fails to mention everything that went really well for him, all the support he received from politicians in Germany and in Virginia, and uh, he never mentions all the support he received from those people on the team who had connections to those politicians.
1: Zuring also receives support from a number of celebrities, Hollywood actor Martin Sheen and best-selling author John Grisham advocate for Zuring's release and discuss the case publicly in interviews. For example, in January 2019, a letter to the editor written by Martin Sheen is published in the Richmond Times, a newspaper that is distributed in the capital of Virginia. In the letter, Sheen describes his efforts on behalf of the German prisoner.
5: I studied the case in detail over the past twelve years as well, and consequently I strongly advocate for his release. This past year, I hosted the Los Angeles premiere of the German documentary on the case, Killing for Love, and wrote the foreword to Suring's latest book, A Far, Far Better Thing.
1: A snowball effect. Zuring orchestrates his support from political, diplomatic, and celebrity circles from prison. Author and American criminal law expert, Andrew Hamill.
7: It's 1990. He's being convicted, and he's facing life in prison, and he won't be eligible for parole for decades. So he has nothing but time. And prisoners who have nothing but time, they can put all of their efforts into propagating their version of the case. Many prisoners simply accept that they're guilty and do their time and then move on. But uh, Yen Zering decided that he wanted to mount a global pressure campaign and to use his connections and contacts in Germany to build up an alternative theory of his case. And he had 10 or 12 hours every single day in which to write people and which to publish articles and which to work on his book, etc. And really, you have to give him credit he did a fantastic job. It was It's always a snowball effect. He gets one sort of prominent supporter who he convinces that he's innocent. Uh, and then this prominent supporter goes to someone else and says, I know Jin, Yin Sering personally. And uh, you know I've met him in prison. He's an honest guy. And you should believe his story. And then that supporter brings in more and more and more and more. And by the late 1990s at He had a distinct and very visible movement on, especially in Germany, but also in the United States.
1: As a result of this snowball effect, Zuring is able to get one big step closer to his goal. He is also able to win music producer Jason Flom over to his side. Flom was previously the chairman of Atlantic and Virgin Records and is credited with discovering pop stars like Katy Perry and Lord. He is also a founding board member of the Innocence Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to abolishing the death penalty and exonerating individuals who have been wrongly convicted. Professor Kirsten Drenkan.
4: The Innocence Project has been around in the U.S. for quite some time. It started out as an initiative in New York, as part of a law clinic where law students would review cases. Originally, all of the cases involved the death penalty. And the question was whether or not there was DNA evidence, and if this evidence was already tested, because they had to limit the number of cases somehow. In the U.S., there are so many people in prison who are serving extremely long sentences. So they said, OK, let's take a look at all of the cases where there are indications that maybe everything wasn't exactly kosher. Let's review the cases and see what happens. And in a lot of cases, they found that there was some DNA evidence that, for whatever reason, hadn't been tested, or wasn't able to be tested at that time, because the technology wasn't available then. And that this evidence indicated that the prisoner in question had been wrongly convicted. And a lot of people had their convictions overturned.
1: Sometime in 2019, Flom invites Züring to be a guest on his podcast, Wrongful Conviction. However, according to Annabelle, Flom's support for Züring goes much further than that.
6: Flom had a breakfast meeting with a gubernatorial candidate, Ralph Northam. Uh, This was in early August 2017. And it was arranged for Jens Züring to call into that meeting. So he called Mr. Flom on his cell phone. And the cell phone was handed to Ralph Northam. And Jens Züring, who at the time was an incarcerated double murderer and whose pardon petition was pending with the Virginia authorities had an opportunity to speak with Ralph Northam for 10 minutes. We were told that during the phone call, Ralph Northam said to Jens Züring, oh, I look forward to meeting you in lunch tour one day, Mr. Züring, because I was stationed there. I'm not sure how many incarcerated double murderers have an opportunity to speak with an incoming governor
1: while their pardon petitions are pending. In 2017, Democrat Ralph Northam is in the midst of his campaign to be the next governor of Virginia. In November 2017, Northam is elected governor of Virginia. In November 2019, Northam announces Zuring's release. New Evidence Zuring's system is a machine that runs like clockwork. But in order to substantiate
7: his claims of innocence, he needs new evidence. He looked at... A DNA report from 2009 and then he looked at the blood group report from 1985 from his trial because American prisoners can they are permitted in fact they have a constitutional right to have all of the documents related to their case with them in their prison cell or available to them and so he looked at the blood group report and then at the DNA report And he found that there was this inconsistency. There were certain, some male DNA that was not from his blood type.
1: Zuring is convinced that his discovery could be the key to his release. Following this discovery, together with his legal team, he hires two American DNA experts, Dr. J. Thomas McClintock and Dr. Moses Shanfield. Initially, Both forensics experts confirm Zuring's findings. However, later on, at least one of the two will refute Zuring's conclusions from the DNA analysis. Nevertheless, this report helps Zuring to attract even more key supporters to his so-called struggle for freedom, including Chuck Reed, who is briefly involved in the investigations of the Haysum murders in 1985, and Chip Harding, Sheriff of Albemarle County, a county that surrounds Charlottesville. After going over the documents that Zuring has prepared on his case, they write letters to the governor of Virginia and give interviews to the press. In April 2018, Chip Harding speaks to the local TV station WSLS 10 in Virginia at length about the case. He is convinced That Zuring was wrongfully convicted in 1990.
5: As I started looking at uh, what was represented as the evidence during the trial and what the real evidence truly is, I started feeling like um, we we had an injustice going on here. I feel like that very strongly that if he was given a new trial today, the jury couldn't even come close to finding him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And if that's You know, if the governor agreed with me, I think he should at least look at a conditional pardon and let him go back to Germany.
1: Around this time, former FBI agent Stan Lapikas becomes Züring's most important advocate. In April 2018, he addresses the public, saying that he is certain that during the investigations after the murder, the FBI created a criminal profile that effectively rules out Züring as the murderer. In an exclusive interview with German television channel RTL, Lapica says that the FBI field agent, Ed Zultzbach, who inspected the crime scene in 1985, had concluded that the murder was committed by an individual who had been close to the family. Based upon his understanding of the victims,
5: especially the female victim, Elizabeth's mother, that given the time of day that it occurred and the way she was dressed in a nightgown, that there's no way she would let a stranger into the house. So that's where Salzbeck came up with that,
1: that whoever knocked on the door or ever came through the door, they knew who that person was. Would the Hasems have opened the door for Jens Züring? After all, he's their daughter's boyfriend. Not exactly a stranger. Züring says that the criminal profile is proof that he can't have been the perpetrator. Whether or not this so-called FBI profile can really exonerate Züring remains to be seen. To the highest court. The jury at Züring's trial in 1990 bases its verdict on a picture made up of a lot of tiny puzzle pieces. The detailed, consistent confessions that Züring offers to multiple individuals. The correspondence between Hazem and Zuring, in which Zuring talks about the evil within him and the potential impending deaths of Elizabeth's parents. His accurate descriptions of the position of the bodies and the sequence of events, a bloody sock print, and the fact that blood matching Zuring's blood type, type O, is found at the crime scene. All of these aspects play a role in the jury's verdict. Professor Kirsten Drenkhan describes the jury system in the United States.
4: That's how trials are in the United States. In some ways, they are split in half. In the first part, it's all about the facts. Did this actually happen? And how do we legally classify it? Then there is an initial verdict of guilty or innocent. Afterwards, the sentencing is determined and the jury is not present for this part. So if it's a jury trial, the jury is present for the portion in which arguments are offered for and against the guilt of the defendant and the evidence is presented. Then they have to decide whether or not the evidence presented is sufficient to determine whether the defendant is guilty of committing these acts or not. The jury doesn't decide on whether or not the defendant gets the death penalty. They only determine the defendant's guilt in terms of the criminal offenses. And selecting people to sit on these juries is an extremely complex process especially for big trials like this one. The members of the jury are meticulously handpicked. It is important that the jury is not biased. They need to maintain strict confidentiality. They can't watch or listen to news reports about the trial or speak to anyone else about it.
1: Andrew Hamel.
7: I have no question at all that Yin Zuring received a fair trial. He had two privately appointed, well-paid defense lawyers, and his jury was composed of a cross-section of the community. In fact, the judge selected the jury from another county in Virginia because the case had been so heavily publicized in the county where it occurred. So the judge called in jurors who had less exposure to the press about the case, and their witness testimony was completely normal. There were no major problems with any of it. And the jury found at the end of the day that the evidence was very, very clear. And all of the judges in all the courts during Zuring's many, many appeals, every single one of them, without any exception, found that the trial was appropriate and fair and reached the correct result.
1: Zuring files appeals in 1991 and 92. Both times, he is unsuccessful. In 1995, he files a petition for habeas corpus. In the American justice system, this is the chance for convicted criminals to have the legality of their imprisonment re-examined after the sentencing. This process lasts until 2001, and the petition goes to the Virginia Supreme Court, to the Federal District Court, to the Federal Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. The appeal is denied at every stage. Starting in 2003, Zuring begins applying for parole every year. Except for his final appeal, every one of these are also denied due to the severity of his crimes. Nevertheless, Zuring continues trying to find apparent inconsistencies in the arguments against him, in his confessions, and in the forensic evidence. In 2016, he appeals to the governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, for a pardon in an attempt to obtain a transfer to Germany. For the first time, he applies for an absolute pardon. Under Virginia law, an absolute pardon, also known as a full or unconditional pardon, not only releases an individual from prison, but includes the unconditional recognition of that individual's innocence by the governor. Zuring justifies his application for an absolute pardon by claiming that the 2009 DNA analysis of the samples collected at the crime scene in 1985 prove his innocence because his DNA is not found at the scene of the crime, and yet, the DNA of two unknown males is found. He also includes the alleged FBI profile as exculpatory evidence. And the idea of Zuring's release is seriously discussed, not only by the relevant authorities, but also, thanks to his popularity, in the media. When Detective Terry Wright, who is now retired, hears about Zuring's alleged DNA evidence and his appeal for an absolute pardon in the news, he feels compelled to review the Haysom murders once again in detail.
3: But going back to the DNA... It was the DNA issue that really made me decide to write to the governor. And although I expected I was going to be writing a letter, maybe 20 or 30 pages, as, as I looked into it, I found more and more and more lies, and it ended up as a 450-page report.
1: In his report, Wright reviews the DNA evidence as well as all of Zuring's other claims that are intended to prove his innocence. He asks his former colleague... Kenneth Beaver, who is also familiar with the case, to review the report. And in 2019, he sends it to the current governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, and the Virginia Parole Board in order to offer them a detailed look at the case that they can use to decide whether or not to recognize Zuring's absolute innocence. After Zuring's release, Terry Wright publishes the report online. Written on the cover page of The Right Report are the words, A True Report on the Facts of the Investigation of the Murders of Derek and Nancy Haysom. Further down on the page, there is a quote by the American author Dorothy Allison. Things come apart so easily when they are held together with lies.
3: When I started to write the report, I really did try to look at everything from the point of view that Jan Serring is innocent. And as I, as I went through all the things that he said in his book, which he called Mortal Thoughts, I still tried for a long time to take the view, perhaps he's innocent, but I found lie after lie after lie after lie. And in the end, I don't believe it at all. And I really did try hard to find evidence to support his story. And I couldn't find any, but I found lots of lies
1: Ever since his sentencing, Zuring's strategy has been to discredit not only his own confessions, but also all of the evidence presented in the case. But when you take a closer look, and not only at the Wright report, many of Zuring's claims prove to be inconsistent.
3: It's generally accepted that Elizabeth said that the whole car was covered in blood. But she didn't say that. And in fact, when when, um, people refer to there being blood all over the place... It was actually Jim Updike that said that. During the trial, it wasn't Elizabeth at all.
1: The Zuring System. Episode 4 of 8. The birth of The Zuring System. Our narrator is Karen Cifarelli. You also heard the voice talents of Sungor Banturk, Seamus Sargent, Anna-Kathrine Thüringer. This has been a production of Argonne Lab and CCC Cinema and Television 2022.